Well, today we're going to take some time to look at Palm Sunday, the week before Easter Sunday. Next week, don't forget, we don't start till 10 o'clock. And so if you show up at 9.30, you'll at least be on time, right? <laughs> I did not know Annie Armstrong. <laughs> she, she was at least five years older than I was. A hundred and fifty-eight years ago, day before yesterday, which was my birthday, but 158 years ago, the tragedy of the American Civil War began. Confederate states, South Carolina being the first, had withdrawn from the United States. During the week just prior to the commencement of hostilities, the federal government decided to leave Major Anderson on the island in Charleston Harbor in the fort called Fort Sumter. The federal government left their troops there. But South Carolina had withdrawn from the Union. And so South Carolina had a decision to make. Were they going to claim Fort Sumter and that island as their own, or were they going to let the Union troops stay there? So on April the 12th, uh, 1861, South Carolina fired on Fort Sumter. That was a tragedy. If the South had backed down, it would have been a triumph for the federal government. They did not. So it became a tragedy when the South fired on Fort Sumter on that April 12th. Four years later, almost to the day, on April the 9th, 1864, uh, 1865, the horrible war effectively came to an end when Lee surrendered to Grant at Appomattox Courthouse in Virginia. It was indeed a triumph that the Union was preserved, the slaves were freed, the old wounds could begin the healing process. But just one week later, the nation was mourning the tragedy of the assassination of President Lincoln. Triumph had turned to tragedy in just one week. Today, we celebrate the triumph and the tragedy of Palm Sunday, one week before the triumph of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So let's take a look at the life that has brought Jesus to this day. What has happened? What has gone on before that has brought Jesus to the point now where he's going to have this triumphal entry into Jerusalem? The angels sang about his birth. We love Christmas time when we enjoy talking and singing about the birth of Jesus Christ. That has happened. 
By at least age 12, he fully understood his purpose. He knew why he had come. And it was to be about his father's business. You can see that in Luke 2. Jesus was introduced to the multitudes by John the Baptist three years ago now at the Jordan River where he was baptized. During his ministry, during this three years ministry since he was baptized, he's turned water into wine. He has healed people. He has preached about love. He's preached about forgiveness. He's preached about obedience to God. And he has made the Pharisees really mad because he is sucking up all the wind that the Pharisees are used to getting. You see, Jesus said, I did not come to destroy the law. If you look at his Sermon on the Mount, at the very beginning of it, after the Beatitudes, he, come, he talks about uh, light, salt, and the city on the hill and all that. And then he says, I didn't come to destroy the law. But the Pharisees are saying, wait a minute, he's not obeying the law all along. He lets the, the uh, disciples eat corn and pick the corn and eat it on the, on the Sabbath and, and uh, you know, other stuff. And so Jesus said, wait a minute, I did not come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill it. So he's changing things. He's putting things kind of on the air. I like to use as an illustration uh, a painter. A painter gets a canvas and the canvas, what they like to do on that canvas, I understand, I am no artist, but they like to get a pencil and draw in what they're going to paint. They sketch in all of the they, they make a nice sketch, and you can tell by just looking at the sketch, hey, that's going to be a really nice painting when they get it done. I see where they're going with that. That is the Old Testament law. Now, Jesus comes along and puts all the color in it and finishes the painting. Oh, it was looking pretty good the way it was. You know, that was the law. But now Jesus has come to complete it. And now we really have something. But the Pharisees liked it the way it was. All they, they liked the sketch because they could kind of interpret it the way they wanted to. And so Jesus is making, is making them mad. Jesus' fame has spread throughout the land as a great teacher, a miracle worker, and by some, the long-promised Messiah. They've been looking for this Messiah for a long time. And now some people are seeing him as that person. Everywhere he went, crowds thronged after him. A lot of them liked the fact that he could feed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fishes. That's pretty good stuff. You know, let's, get to, let's go with this guy because he can feed us. But a lot of them liked his teachings. They liked his new way of looking things about the way that he turned the sketch into the painting. They listened to what Jesus had to teach him. But they thronged after him. He had huge crowds everywhere he went. What a triumph Jesus was providing, or Jesus was. 
As his fame grew, so did the hatred by the scribes and the Pharisees, who now, at the Passover season, were plotting his death. They were tired of him getting all the glory. They were tired of his changing the way that they had always thought, the way they had bent all of the laws of God to make it where they wanted to be. And so they were tired of it, and they were plotting his death. And now Jesus begins his last week of public ministry on earth, and Jesus knows it's his last week. He wasn't fooled by this. He knows exactly what's happened. It has been part of the plan from the beginning of time. It's always been there. Part of God's plan for the redemption of mankind, including the redemption of those scribes and Pharisees if they just pay attention. So Jesus has been guarding the secret of his Messiahship all the way through his ministry up until now. You remember he tells people, okay, now I've done this miracle with you, but go and tell nobody. I don't want people to know about this yet. The woman at the well where Jesus said, okay, yeah, you've been married five times, but the guy that you're living with now is not even your husband. You know, he does all that stuff that he's not supposed to even know. It's a God thing. But he says, but don't go telling anybody that, I, that I'm able to do this. And when, at, the, at the transfiguration, he told the disciples, keep it quiet now. So, and he does that over and over and over again because the time has not come yet for him to be making it known that he is indeed the Messiah. It's not time yet. But now, one week before his crucifixion, burial, and resurrection, the time has come. It is the right time. It is exactly the plan. The time has come when Jesus would let the people proclaim him as king, as prophesied by the prophet Zechariah in Zechariah 9.9, where he said, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter, uh, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly, riding on a donkey, on a colt, and a foal of a donkey. This was written hundreds of years before Jesus actually came but it prophesied what was going to happen, that Jesus as king of kings would not be coming in an airplane, but he would be coming on a donkey. That's him. Jesus knew this would be a great event that would bring his mission to fulfillment. Genesis 3.15, and I've mentioned this in a message before. Genesis 3.15 is what I believe is the first announcement of what is going to happen here. That's that verse that says, and I will put, God's talking to Satan, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his feet. What that is talking about, the offspring of the woman is going to be Jesus. Satan is the serpent. And it's saying that the offspring of the woman, Jesus, will crush the, the, the snake's head. Jesus is utterly go going to destroy Satan. 
But Satan will bruise the heel of Jesus. He's going to crucify him, but it's just a bruise. It's not going to destroy him. But Jesus is going to be able to utterly destroy Satan, which we see coming up. We're going to talk about that next week with Jesus. But first, let's look at the triumph of this first Palm Sunday. The triumph. Imagine a beautiful spring day. The roads are crowded with people on their way to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. You remember what the Passover is, right? It was when they were back in Egypt and the firstborn was about to be killed in each family because uh, uh, Pharaoh had not given in and let the people go. And so uh, God had told the uh, people to put blood on the doorpost and everybody that had blood on the doorpost, the death angel would pass over them. And so all the children of Israel put blood on the doorpost and they were saved. And so every year now, there's a celebration for the time when the death angel passed over the children of Israel. So now they were celebrating the Passover and you have a, have a feast and so on. So they were there to celebrate the Passover and the disciples thought they were going to celebrate the Passover feast as well. Now let's talk about the preparation for celebrating the Passover. They had to do some preparation. Jesus has his disciples with him, and they're getting ready to do this Passover feast. They've they're got preparations to do. They had to make preparation for his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Let's read about it in Luke 19, 29 to 34, if you have your Bible. Luke 19, 29 to 34. Starting at verse 29, as he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're untying it, say, the Lord needs it. The Lord this is Jesus acknowledging himself as the Lord. Up to this point, he hadn't been doing that. Now he acknowledges himself in his rightful position. Those who are sent ahead, verse 32, those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. Notice a couple of God things here. Number one, they found the colt just as Jesus had said that they would. Now, Jesus hasn't been into the town before. He just knew Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. The 100% God part knew that there was going to be a cult in that town. I mean, his text messaging wasn't working. He wasn't able to get a hold of the guy that owned the cult and send him a note and say, hey, would you put the cult out there? And besides, when they went to get him, the guy that owned him said, what are you guys doing? Why are you taking my cult? So no preparation had been made. Jesus just knew that it was going to be there. That's the first God thing that happened. Jesus knew it. They went out and they got the cult. And they brought him back. The second God thing that happened was that Jesus climbed up on him and it didn't throw him off. 
This colt had never been ridden before. Have you ever ridden an animal that hasn't been ridden before? Those of you that live, that raised livestock, when I was a kid, we used to, you know, we, were, we got in trouble for it, but we'd raise uh, uh, beef, and, and we, like when they were yearlings, we'd get up on them and try to ride them. Boy, they'd throw you off because they're not used to being ridden. When I was a, a disc jockey at a radio station in Clovis when I was in college, uh, the disc jockeys played donkey baseball against some other entity there in Clovis to raise money for some charitable purpose. I don't even remember what it was. But, but the donkeys that we rode, what you do is you, you stand up and you, and you hit a baseball, a softball, they lob a softball, and you hit that, and when I missed it, well, then he gave me a shovel to, to hit it. And, and so I hit the ball, and then I had to get up on a donkey and ride him to first base. The donkeys were trained not to let you ride them. And I ended up on the ground. Every time i get on the donkey, he'd start bucking. And i end up on the, you know, it's, it's for the fun of the, of the crowd. But can you imagine? This donkey that Jesus got on had never been written. It should have thrown him off onto the ground. Donkeys are that way. But it was a God thing. This donkey just obeyed. Jesus got on the donkey right there. Jesus can use anything for his ministry, even the untamed and inexperienced, even those of us who tend to be like donkeys. Anybody in here tend to be like? Yeah. If he could use an untamed donkey, maybe he can use some of us for his ministry. He can use anything he wants to. So that was the preparation. Now let's look at the procession. There was the procession of the triumphal entry. It was something. Starting at verse 35 of Luke 19. Verse 35. They brought it, the donkey, to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road... When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began talking about all the people who were following Jesus. The whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The people were really getting into it. It was exciting. It was a wonderful time. The people were excited about Jesus finally identifying himself as the king of kings. A lot of people thought he was going to be an earthly king. And they were so excited about him coming in into Jerusalem. The disciples were also, the twelve, were really enjoying the attention that they were getting. Some of the people probably asked them, who is this? And they said, this is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And in other words, they were probably saying, he's our buddy. 
We've, we've been hanging around him for, for three years. He's, he knows us. He knows us by name. We can tell you stuff about him. <laughs> we know Jesus is our, he's our friend. We know him really well. Even the disciples were still not, though, fully convinced that he would not be setting up an earthly kingdom. But they were so proud. The processional. The crowds had heard of him, and they began cheering. But it was a fickle crowd, many of whom would call for his crucifixion a few days later. But now, with high emotion, they threw their cloaks and the palm branches down on the ground. Soon, they were at the Mount of Olives with a beautiful view of the city of Jerusalem. What emotion. It was overwhelming. All that was going on. The emotion that was happening. It was emotion for the disciples. It was emotion for the crowd. It was emotion for Jesus himself. Do you sometimes feel really religious after a particularly emotional service? Or do you sometimes feel really religious when the hero dies at the end of a movie? I'm just saying, sometimes emotion drives our religion instead of the other way around. Be careful that emotion does not drive your faith instead of your faith driving your emotion. Put those things in proper perspective. Let's look for a moment at the Pharisees during Christ's triumphal entry. The crowd was cheering so loudly that the whole valley rang with Hosanna. What a Palm Sunday. But the Pharisees just wanted them to shut up. They were, you know, they were used to getting all the attention. Verse 39 says, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus said, hey, it's them or the rocks. You know? Verse 40, I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. This was the time established from the beginning for the king of kings to be recognized. There was going to be noise made on his behalf. And if it wasn't the people shouting, God was going to make something else happen. Because there was going to be noise to recognize Jesus Christ. The cathedral's quartet sang a nifty song based on this verse. And it says, the rocks shall not cry out in my place as long as I have breath to lift my voice, I'll give him praise. As long as I can make a joyful noise, I'll sing and shout and never let the rocks cry out. Do, 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 do. The, the rocks will not cry out in my place. In John's account, we see the Pharisees turning green with envy. John 12, 19 says, So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Boy, they were so envious. 
Everyone during this processional now was happy except for two entities. The Pharisees weren't happy, and Jesus was not happy. Oh, you would think Jesus would be reveling in this moment, but Jesus was not. This is where we come to, we've been talking about the triumph. Now this is where we come to the tragedy. The tragedy, there was one who wept. That was Jesus. Was he afraid to die? Of course not. He was God. And he was on a mission. And he knew that this was where the mission was going to lead him. Was he overcome with the emotion of the moment? Well, yeah, but not in the way that you and I would be. You can see Matthew's account in Matthew 23, 37, Jesus speaking. Jesus said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Remember, he's standing on the hill overlooking Jerusalem. He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing and he says that to you and me today. Oh, I want so badly for you to hear my voice. He was brokenhearted for those he knew would reject him. He said, I have the cure for your disease. I have the cure. And you won't take it. It broke his heart, and he wept. In verses 41 to 42 of our text, we read, As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. You've said no for so long. It's going to be really hard for you to say yes now. It's a tragic story of lost love. One loves and the other does not. Jesus loved and the people did not. It's also the tragedy of lost opportunity. And my friends, the opportunity is still available today. That same opportunity is available today in this room and in churches across this city and around the world and not in necessarily in churches but in hearts of people who feel a tug of the Holy Spirit saying, won't you let me come in? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Just let me come in. The opportunity is there just as it was in Jerusalem at that time. The opportunity is still there. Won't you listen to it? Do you, my friend, in this auditorium this morning, know Jesus Christ personally? Have you given your life to him? Oh, why would you let such an opportunity pass you by? 
Jesus, the same Jesus that stood on the hillside and looked into Jerusalem and wept because people were turning him down. Why would you pass up such an opportunity? Don't do that. Finally, let's take a quick look at the resulting tribulation. There was tribulation as a result of their turning Jesus down. Jesus looked into the future and he gave a warning. While the people cheered, Jesus saw the eventual destruction to come. He prophesied in verses 43 to 44. He said, the day will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Jesus didn't want to give that prophecy. It broke his heart. He was crying. Oh, my goodness, just come to me. But if you don't, It's not going to be good for you. The enemy will come in and destroy you. And because Jerusalem turned down Jesus in 70 A.D. after the Bible was finished. We don't read about it in the Bible. But in 70 A.D., Titus from Rome came in and did exactly what Jesus said here. And destroyed Jerusalem. Jerusalem and left not one stone of the temple standing on top of another. You can read about it in your history book. Destruction is not what Jesus wants. He loves us and offers us escape and redemption. It's found by accepting his love and loving him back. Jesus loves you so I'm so glad he loves us. On that Palm Sunday, he demonstrated that love by saying, hey, here I am. I'm the King of kings, the Lord of lords, God Almighty in the form of a man. Now I am the Messiah, the one who has come to save mankind from his sins. Now it can be acknowledged I am here to save you. Won't you accept me? And you can do that today. Still accepting Jesus Christ. What about you on this Palm Sunday? Will you return Christ's love? Will you take advantage of this opportunity for a loving relationship with him? Will you do that? Will you pray to receive Christ, this same Jesus? He's still alive. Because next week we talk about his resurrection. This coming Friday is what we call Good Friday. That's when he got crucified. And then this coming Sunday, a week from today, was his resurrection. See, it was all part of God's plan. And we talk about, remember when we did the study about uh, this, I believe? The first week we talked about the basis of our beliefs being the Bible. And the whole Bible is about the redemption of mankind. And Jesus came as part of God's plan for the redemption of mankind. The redemption. We were lost, but now we've been redeemed. 
by the blood of Jesus Christ. And on Palm Sunday, Jesus identified himself to the world as the Redeemer. Aren't you glad? Bow your heads with me, please. If you've never prayed to receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you can do that right now. And I encourage you and I invite you to do that. To accept the fact, the Bible says, that we have all sinned. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Yes, we have. And accept that the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. But it goes on to say, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Our sin has created a separation between us and God. And if we die with that separation in place, we spend eternity separated from God in a place the Bible calls hell. And it describes it as a horrible place that our souls will go for eternity. But Jesus is the bridge between where we are now and where God is. By accepting Jesus into our lives, making him our savior, telling him that we love him and we invite him to become our master and our Lord and we accept his death as payment for our sins. By accepting him, then we move from where we are to God, and we spend all eternity with him. Our sins are forgiven, the slate is wiped perfectly clean, and he is our Lord and Savior for all eternity. Why would you not do that? I encourage you to pray a prayer right now that says something like this. Dear Jesus, I know I've sinned. And I know my sin must be paid for by death. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for my sin. I now accept that death, your death, as payment for my sin. I repent and ask you to come into my life. I give myself to you. Be my Lord and be my master. Thank you, Jesus. Now, if you just prayed to receive Christ, then he is your Lord and master if you were sincere. And he will never leave you nor forsake you. With your heads bowed, Christians praying. If you have prayed to receive Christ just now, or if you need someone to explain to you exactly what you need to do to make sure you're in right relationship with him we're going to have some counselors standing down here at the front and I encourage you to come down here and visit with one of these counselors about the next step that you can take in getting your life right with him or if you just need to come down and pray with a counselor just to make sure that you're in right relationship with the Lord or if you need to know the next step you need to take in your relationship with him and I invite you, as we stand now, please, would you please stand? And during this next few moments, while the music quietly plays, if you, if you need to come forward and visit with a counselor or if you just need to come pray, I encourage you to come and do that right now.
Jesus, I pray that you will move among the folks now and that lives will be changed and we will all be committed to you and that not a person will leave this room without being totally and completely committed to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you just keep on praying and you make your commitment to Christ right now, lead us in a closing prayer but counselors will remain at the front for a few moments after the prayer is over so if you did not want to come forward with the people standing here you can come up afterwards and visit with one of these counselors about the next step you need to take in your walk with Christ Father I pray now that you will go with us as we leave this place help us to be faithful to you in all that we do thank you for your triumphal entry and the fact that you are so concerned that you provide redemption for us. We love you, Lord. And I pray that if there's anyone in, in here, and probably in a group this size, there are several who are struggling with their commitment with you, that they will take this moment to visit with one of these counselors about next steps. Help us to be faithful to you in all that we do. Thank you, Lord, for loving us so. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. Service time begins, remember, next Sunday at 10 o'clock. God bless you.